cross, the quiver's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through and through, hunts my middle name. My eyes are on the target, broadheads all fly true. Can't wait till I can get outside so I can fling a few. Welcome to the Track Quest Podcast, brought to you by Kefaro International. What's going on, Bob? How much, buddy? How you doing? Man, I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. Today's uh, podcast was pretty awesome. Yeah. We, uh, Abs- absolute stud. Yep. Who do we have, Bob? Harold Farenbrook. Yeah, from Colorado. This guy... Uh, Shared a, I mean, he's been hunting with a stick bow since he was a kid. Man, this guy, he, he sounds like he doesn't need very many days to get it done. When he hits the woods, <laughs> he hits the woods running. Yeah, no kidding. He, uh, he definitely, yeah, three or five days to hunt elk and, and doing it. So he came highly recommended by Marv Clinky. So thanks, Marv, for helping us out with that one. And, uh, yeah, just an absolute killer and a super good guy he's he's uh super passionate about a lot of the things that james and i are too about just uh you know keeping our seasons and they got some issues going on in colorado so we did uh we did talk some hunting but we got into you know a little bit of that the politics going on with all that and and uh getting kids involved in our sport and kind of the issues today's society and the challenges that brings so uh Super good guy for sure. Yeah, I thought it was a really good uh, conversation, and I think it's a conversation that we all need to be having. and And I hope that the listeners take this uh, podcast and go have these conversations with their friends and their family, and with their uh, uh, state organizations. Because uh, I think you know we, we mentioned the 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 squeaky wheel gets the grease. And I think it's it's time for you know people to have these talks, and um, we like uh, using this platform to to do so, especially with uh, guys like him. Yeah, for sure. He's super passionate about it, and he's uh, he's no BS. He doesn't you know not worried about hurting everybody's feelings. He's just trying to do you know the right thing for the hunter out there. So we really really respect him for that. So it was a it was kind of an honor having him on and. And getting to just sit down and talk to him about it for a couple hours, I think it went. So, yeah, it was it was difficult uh, not wanting to jump into the rabbit hole of because he's a guide and he's hunted a bunch in Alaska. Uh, you know, wanting to uh, drift up north with him, but we discussed before the podcast that we would uh, we'd go down that uh, uh, journey with him in a future podcast. So we really kind of covered the the Colorado scene and uh, definitely look forward to hearing more up North adventures with this guy. For sure. Enjoy. Welcome to the track quest podcast. We've got Harold Farnbrook today. Hey Harold, how are you? I'm doing just fine. Uh, thanks for coming on. We do appreciate it. Yeah. It's a, a unique opportunity to, to talk to you guys. I've already talked to Aaron. He says you're a class act. So, uh, 
um, I'm looking forward to this as well. Awesome. So you're uh, a native of Colorado, I presume? Correct. Yeah, my uh, my family homesteaded here in Colorado, both sides of my family. Um, my dad, more out there in the eastern plains, northeast Colorado, and my mom up in Marble, Colorado. Awesome. And so how uh, did you get into uh, bow hunting? Have you been doing it since a uh, young man? or? Very young. Yeah, I was... Uh, um, it always intrigued me. I'd have to say my very first uh, bow experience, Colorado at the time, you had to be 14 years old to hunt big game. Um, and that I hunted with my, you know, my dad, my grandpa, whatnot. And uh, the first year I did that was with a rifle. But the two, three weeks before season started, I mean, I was hounding my dad day in and day out to let me go up there and scout and figure things out and um and against my mother's wishes he he went ahead and brought me up there and let me do that i mean he he called my bluff and dropped me off and 3 days later picked me up and um i mean i definitely had my initials on the animal that i wanted to harvest come opening day uh the problem was opening day come and i shot my very first bull elk i shot my very first buck because it was combination season at that time and I was done, and I'm like, man, this this kind of sucks. Um, and the year after that, when I was 15, I decided I was going to hunt bow for elk and then rifle for deer. So that way, I could just have a longer season and 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 what and take it from there. So I was successful. I got my first elk with a bow, and then I got another deer with a rifle, which was no challenge. I don't want to cut rifle hunting because I, uh, my, my, my wife, my daughter, and my family, friends, and a whole lot of people rifle hunt, and you know they, we could never harvest the animals needed by bows. Uh, there's definitely a need for rifle season. So I'm not knocking rifle hunting at all. I'm just saying it was no challenge, and I was looking for a challenge. I wanted to hunt, not necessarily shoot. Then from there, uh, the following year, I switched it up and hunted deer archery, elk rifle, so I could still hunt with my dad and whatnot, and because I was doing the archery 100% by myself. And again, it was I like I totally loved. Couldn't wait till next season to hunt elk, and because I did it the year before with a bow, and then now it's hunting rifle. I mean, hunting uh, archery with deer, you know, high altitude buck tags. That's whenever you could just buy an over-the-counter tag in Colorado, and just. It, it was like, it was I was at awe with the whole thing. Well, now I have my driver's license. I'm 16 years old. And I was guiding for Crystal River Outfitters in Marble, Colorado. And with that, I had to guide during rifle season. He had no bow hunter, so it was my chance to bow hunt and scout for his, you know, the first season coming up, first rifle, and kill two birds with one stone. And I've never looked back. And even if I wouldn't have been guiding after I hunted that, when I was 15, year old, 15 years old, that mule deer, and seeing the elk that were up there bugling while I'm trying to get a deer, and and just the whole pristineness of it, it was. I was never going to go back. I was never going to go back to rifle hunting. Uh, the animals I was able to see by glassing across a canyon, a mule deer laying there, and then, I mean, once I got 100 yards away, you know, now the hunt just started. I mean, I was hunting with a recurve, and I had to get, you know, another 75, 80 yards closer. And that was really the the point that I knew that uh, I'd found my niche and my hobby for life uh, was 
to get next to that big buck. And during that hour that it took me to get that last 60 yards, 70 yards, 80 yards, all of a sudden another buck showed up and another buck showed up. So if I would have had a rifle in my hand, I wouldn't have seen those other two bucks. Um, I would have just shot and it would have been over. Well, that first opportunity, I didn't get any of them, but I got right in their living room. I mean, I was 20 yards away from one of the three that was, and I'll never, I remember it like it was yesterday, even though I was 16 years old when it happened. I wanted to shoot the buck that was behind him because it was a much larger buck. And But just to be that close when the wind finally swirled and the blew them all out of there, I was like, they kind of gave me that look or gave me that feeling like, how the hell did you ever get this close? And that was gratifying in itself. So when I talk to people and the people see my picture album or come to my house and see the animals that I've harvested, um, they're like, man, that's just awesome you did it with a stick bow. And I'm like, you know what? It's the way I chose the hunt. I think I got the best advantage hunting with a stick bow. If I got a canter my bow, I mean, if I got a quick release, if I got a snap shoot, I mean, when I'm 10, 15 yards away from you, I guarantee you're not going to jump the string because I'm, I'm too damn close. I'm, uh, as opposed to guiding my whole life, seeing guys shoot 60, 70, 80 yards with a compound and seeing the animals jump the string. And being that close um, is, is my decision. Now, if I was one of those guys that didn't care or didn't, wasn't comfortable or didn't have the confidence myself to, to get that kind of distance away from an animal, um, then I would have picked up a compound, and I would have been content with that, and I would have been taking those longer shots and been just as successful. I mean, I probably would have killed, you know, a lot more animals or harvested a lot more animals that would have been, you know, some I mean, some of the bucks I've let walk or walked away from me before I was able to get close enough to them or bulls were just, you know, jaw droppers. And But I, if I couldn't get within 30 yards of them, I wasn't going to shoot. And I don't know how many animals I've had in that, just that gray area of 40 yards, you know. And uh, But it's a decision I made, and I'm, I don't give, I don't, feel that uh, the pat on the back, other than it is harder with traditional equipment, but it's, it's the path I chose. I like getting I like getting close. If I didn't like getting close, then I'd be just as happy if I was shooting them 60, 70 yards away. But I work harder at it. I do. I will say that. Or anybody else that does it, too. And they know what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So was that your equipment that you started with? You know, what what, what did that look like, and, and how was that... Um, changed and how did you progress through that time of the of the compound and and stay true to the stick could you speak to that yeah i mean I, i've never shot a compound i mean i've never hunted with a compound um i won a couple of compounds and rendezvous that i was that i shot at you know i was using traditional equipment but you know i mean here i am it didn't matter what bow you used but when i won it you know what i won was the first bow i ever won was a pfc and um, I shot that instinctively. It was back in the day before the whole overdraw and that kind of stuff to where you could pull it back all the way to your face and shoot it instinctively. And I was like, boy, could I get use of this in a hurry? I mean, there was no arc to my arrow. There was, I mean, it was, it was a matter-of-fact bow. But I, I just, I, I, in my heart, I just, again, I have nothing against compound guys, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't my cup of tea. I just... I, I didn't like it. So my first bow, as far as starting out with, I bought it at a flea market. It was a fiberglass yellow and white bow that I don't know. It, I've never seen them in, in years and years and years. 
and it was a 50-pound bow, and that's what I killed my first elk with, and that's what I killed my first deer with. When I got 16, I got introduced to um, um, Fred Azabel, uh, and he had at the time Colorado Bighorn. And those, I mean, I mean, I'm talking. I paid fifty dollars. I didn't even pay that twenty dollars for a fifty-pound bow at the flea market. Now all of a sudden, I'm looking at a bow. I mean, this was back in, you know, eighty-one. That now all of a sudden, I'm looking at a bow that's seven, eight hundred dollars. <laughs> and but this guy let me work with him. I kind of swept his shop and greased a few machines, and and he'd sit down with me and and help me sand and kind of. I can't say I built my first bow, I mean, real bow, uh, the Colorado Bighorn. He did it, I mean, 100% of it, but I got to really observe the whole aspects of everything that he did to make my bow. And I mean, I got to put my hands on it and sand on it a little bit and do a little bit of laminating, but th- that's kind of how I got into my first, you know, the other bows were real too, but they were, they were just Kmart special type bows. And then my uh, so my first real bow was a Colorado Bighorn. That's really cool. That's how I started. Um, my first custom bow came from Norm Johnson at Blacktail Bows, and I did the same thing. I, I he lives down the road from me, so I swept his shop, and I grinded limb veneers, and I had sanded bows, and I kind of picked out my woods. And I mean, he built my bow for me, but I was there for the experience and helped along the way. So I, I share that uh, same same uh, memory. It's it's pretty cool to be a part of the the build. Yeah, it was it was really cool. I mean, and uh, so I was I was proud of the peacock with that bow, walking around as a sixteen year old with this bow that uh, was worth more money than my dad's thirty out six and this that, and the other, you know. But um, um, and then I, I shot that bow for two or three years. Then I went to the Colorado Bighorn Longbow and shot that for four or five years. And I just, I just liked the recurve better. I mean, I stacked out some animals with my longbow, but I just, it just wasn't fun to shoot as, it was, as my recurve was. And maybe I just haven't shot enough longbows. Well, I know I haven't. To, I know there's probably better ones out there or something that might shoot a little easier or whatnot. I don't know, but... I, it wasn't fun to shoot as it was my recurve. I just, uh, it was almost like an extension of my body shooting that recurve. Well, that recurve, I busted a limb on it, and I, Fred Asabel sold to King of the Mountain, and they moved their operation to Longmont, and I, so he made another set of limbs for me, and then I was setting an antelope blind that same year, and I'm watching my string, and all of a sudden my bow, my string just kind of twisted, and my string slid down my bow down by my limb and I'm like what the heck and here I got an antelope coming into my you know to the watering hole I'm at and I can't get my bow strong the the thing was just like a wet noodle so I took it back to them and they said well no you must have kept this in the back seat of your car when it was all hot out we don't guarantee that so with that I would never shoot another Colorado Bighorn as long as I live (laughs) I mean the quality 100% went down once he took it over and then, um, uh, so then I met up with Mike Palmer, and I've shot a Palmer bow for 29 years. And, um, and that, I, I highly recommend Palmer bows. I mean, Mike Palmer, he never sells retail, and I talked him into going to uh, Rocky Mountain Specialty Gear, and he's the, that's the only outfit that, they, that he allows to sell his bow retail. And, um, and they, they can't keep them on the shelf when he brings them in there, and I I, I swear that by that bow. I know there's the boyers that are out there at this day and age 
there's a lot of class act, really good bows, really good boyers, really good people. And I'm just being a mechanic my whole life. I just hate fixing something that ain't broken. So <laughs> I just always stuck to the Palmer bow. Being really good friends with him, too. I mean, his brochure has me in there with my bighorn sheep with his bow in it. Uh, he has me in there with a caribou uh, with his bow in it and his brochure. So that was real. I was real honored uh, being uh, you know 20 years old, you know, having him choose my couple pictures to put in his brochure and and we've been friends ever since and this bow that's old school and, and just the way the, the bows are made nowadays and arrows and that kind of stuff i mean i had a 70 pound bow and that's what i shot and it was hard to get wood arrows for because all i shot was wood arrows and and it, you know, i had to get a 90 pound spline because it's you know such a fast bow and um when i had a really bad accident four years ago where i broke my my sternum, my collarbone, my upper palate, compound fractures on both wrists. Um, I mean, I, the skull fracture I have is split behind my left eye and, and my right eye. So I got two staples behind my left eye and one behind my right eye where they kind of put my skull back together. From that point on, I couldn't shoot that 70-pound bow no more. So he gave me a pair of uh, 55 or 56-pound limbs. And, and so that's what I've shot the last three years with the exception of the of the buffalo I shot in the Kayabab uh, two years ago. Um, I felt I had to blow the dust off that thing, even though I retired it for a year. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to uh, shoot. I felt I needed that extra for this buffalo. I mean, a buffalo is something. When you think of buffalo hunting or buffalo, there's nothing more says something about bows between Indians and and buffalo, and I just always wanted a bow with traditional equipment. I mean, always wanted a bison, and, and it finally came true. I drew the super raffle tag, so it was the same thing as having a governor's tag. I had a year to hunt a buffalo, and I shot on the 77th day of my hunt. That's six different trips Holy to Arizona smokes. from Colorado. Wow. But that was 77 days. That's Wow. Uh, yeah, I, I, when I grew up, I read Chuck Adams. He had a book out, and he went through his buffalo hunts in there and man that just sounded so awesome i'm uh hopefully someday i'll get lucky also and get a tag but that sounds awesome we would love to hear that story yeah let's sure. talk about the buffalo hunt for sure yeah yeah well, a lot, a lot of our is. listeners can't read so that's good okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's why this conversation will go well um, that's why i've never done this stuff before they always said you should write a book about some of your experience not these things down in a journal i'm like What's a journal? I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I, I wish I would have. Yeah. If I have any suggestions for hunters out there being, you know, 56 years old, and I look back at my picture albums and look at stuff, is, man, take the time to write on the back of a picture or, or take notes and, and have something like that because I look at these pictures and I'm like, God, who was with me on that trip? I mean, old high school buddy or, I mean, I mean what it – I, I can remember the hunt. I can remember that animal. But as far as everything that led up to that, sitting around the campfire, bullshitting, current events, it it'd be nice to capture some of that. And so, if any recommendation for any anybody out there is be a little more um, proactive in regards to making your memories last to the age that I'm at now. Because even though I remember that animal. I'd sure like to remember the individuals that got to share it with me. And, and, and so that's advice for that one. I don't know why I threw that in there real quick. But. Sure. No, that's good advice, um, man. Those memories, you think they're never going to fade, but but they do a little oh, bit exactly. over time. I'm only 37, and I 
you know, I'll have people all the time, you know, and I don't know if it's the Alzheimer's kicking in already from lack of sleep from my job or what, but I have guys all the time be like, oh, you remember that time, this and that? I'm like, man, I, I don't. Or something will spark, you know, going through an old picture album. I'll remember something that just totally like, ah, I totally forgot about that. So that's, that is good right. advice. They have yeah. a way of kind of weaving together as one big story, you know. They do. They do. Um, so getting back to the whole bison hunt, I um, it was 2016 that I uh, I bought the you know they had the raffle tag. So if you buy if you buy a hundred dollars worth hundred dollars worth twenty five dollars each, you get a fifth one free thrown in. So I bought four desert sheep ones and I bought one buffalo one. Wow. And so you know the next thing I know I come home and there's a message on my phone saying hey apparently you bought some raffle tickets for the state of arizona and i'm the president of the desert sheep foundation kind of volunteering my time here and um you need to give me a call back so immediately i like my I was, my heart was racing so bad i mean i thought i had a desert sheep tag i mean i was like not that i was disappointed but i in a well i guess i was disappointed in a big way i thought i had a year to hunt a desert sheep I wish he wouldn't have introduced himself like that because <laughs> for a millionth of a second, I was like totally let down. He goes, hey, yeah, you got a bison tag. I'm like, okay, why didn't the president of the bison foundation give me a call? I mean, why did it have to be, you know, you? Um, so he goes, I'm going to sound real happy. I go, no, I'm ecstatic, but I got to I gotta let this, I, I got to let my, you know, what I, the thought that I had. Uh, kind of sink in or go away, evaporate, and then we'll, we'll we'll get into this bison thing. So I got the bison tag. Unfortunately, I missed the very first rut because I didn't find out till July. Season started August first, which is the rut for bison. But I was guiding in Alaska for Jonah Stewart, so I was going to miss that rut. But I figured, you know, I got a year to, to hunt this bison, and I wanted to kind of do it in the winter when they had their nice winter coats and stuff like that and i i really thought that i i could get it done because you know i I thought myself being you know energetic and be able to do something like that so after i got back home from guiding in alaska the doll sheep and the grizzly bear uh which was late september i immediately got home loaded up the truck and headed to arizona which was after the rut everything's kind of kind of at a lull and I got the boundary on my GPS, and I walked that boundary. It was about, if I remember right, it was right around 11 miles where I was walking. And I'd walk that whole boundary, hitchhike back to my truck at night, and just kind of familiarize myself, trying to see if any bison are leaving the park. And, and what I was really disappointed about was there was a lot of road system that paralleled that park boundary. And this is a high-end tag for anybody that draws it. So the residents that drew it, you know, usually takes 30 preference points or more to draw this tag. So it's a family event. It's a friend event. I mean, it's a huge deal, as it should be. But everybody that had a tag also had four or five buddies with four or five trucks up there driving that boundary line to an old radio and back, hey, I got a bison here or I got a bison here. But what they were doing is, educating the bison and those bison stick one nose over that boundary line it was getting shot off so no bison were leaving the park and i had to be behind the firing line of the rifle hunters to get one with my bow <laughs> and so it was really discouraging i got into the wilderness area of uh, of that to where there was i got out of the road system but i wasn't seeing any buffalo sign there and that's but desert country that's desert country so you're 
you're just looking for tracks in the sand, basically, when, you, when no. you're walking your 12 miles or what? No, I, I thought it was going to be. The Kayabab is nothing but Ponderosa Pine, the most oh, beautiful okay. forest you'd ever be in. It's Ponderosa Pine, Aspens. I mean, it's what you see. It's not, it wasn't like, I mean, the only thing I knew about Buffalo was watching um, uh, Kevin Costner and uh, what the hell was that? <laughs> dancing, dancing with Wolves? Dancing with Wolves, yeah. <laughs> so... That was my only experience of Buffalo, you know, and I was like, so when I got up there and I'm driving through this forest, I'm like, God, am I in the right place here? And, um, and I was, and it, it is beautiful forest. I mean, you know, Ponderosa Pine that are, you know, 11 feet across the bottom at the trunks, you know, it was just uh, exactly as I envisioned as a kid um, of what my Buffalo would be harvested in. And, um, so it wasn't that desert, that desert stuff. It was, uh, it was, it was the mountain country that you would typically find elk and deer in. And you know, it never there, there's no elk in the Kayabab, but there is, you know, it's kind of known for its its mule deer. And um, so I never saw buffalo in 14 days. Came back home, went back again, first of November, and spent 10 days up there. Never saw buffalo. And same thing, I was just walking the 11 miles, get, get come out way after dark and hope that I could hitchhack ride, you know, get a ride back. And then I met up with a guy named Russ, and everywhere walking this boundary, I would see these buffalo trails leaving the park, and I would follow them, and they'd be on a salt lick. They'd be leading to a salt lick, and trail cameras on these salt licks. So that's how they were drawing them out of the park. And um, I finally ran into a gentleman named Russ Jacoby, who is the outfitter up there, and that's pretty much how he, he gets them out of the park. And he, he really follows through with it. I mean, he works with the Colorado Division of Wildlife to kind of educate the guys that are up there going to do it so you don't step on each other's toes. And you don't have to be his client, and he'll still help you out as if you were. So we kind of scratched each other's back. He let me stay in his camp because I went up there in January, and I spent like 15 days up there and – didn't see any buffalo, nothing out of the park. So I went back up in February, and now the snow's four feet deep up there. And I had to ride my snow machine in there about 40 miles to where to where I wanted to be in the park. And Russ Jacoby, he said, you know what? You don't have to stay in your tent no more. You're going to stay in my trailer. They left up there year-round. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. You haul in salts to some of these baits, to these places, because now they're buried in four feet of snow, and and change out my SD cards, and I'm doing all this with snow on snowshoes, and um, <laughs> That's awesome. And but it worked out well because you know I really got a good relationship with him, and nothing happened that winter. I had one, the only buffalo I saw one other buffalo besides the one I killed in 77 days, and that was in February, and it was out of the park. I'm on one side of the canyon, glassing across the other, and I'm glassing. Look like somebody went through there with a bulldozer pushing the snow. I'm like, man, that's got to be buffalo. And then I finally just glass and glass and glass, never saw the buffalo. I go, man, that's, that's only one thing up there that could have done that. So then the next day I looked at my maps and figured out how I could get over there with a snow machine or close and then walked the last couple miles in. And sure as shit, he was out of the park, and there was my buffalo. February fully you know i mean the hair on it was awesome big old bull and i go man i i've got this i mean it's going to happen and i got down there within about 60 yards of him and i couldn't see him no more because of this little rise we were in next thing i know i could hear him grunting and i could see snow flying i'm like what the hell and this is going on for about five six minutes 
and Harry did. He bedded down 40 yards from me, dug himself three feet down into the snow till he hit ground. So all I could see was the top of his horns. I couldn't, I couldn't shoot him. <laughs> and so now I'm waiting and waiting for him to stand back up because I'm standing his old tracks from the day before. And he's, I'm figuring he's going to come back to my way because those places he's already pawed to the ground and, mm-hmm. and exposed the grass that he was eating. So I'm like, he's got to be coming over here. Well, now the snow is getting real crusty on top, and I try to make a move, and I fall through it, and I, I, mean, I made a lot of noise. I'm like, shit, how am I, I can't even back out. Well, now it's getting dark, and I have no choice, so I'm putting my snowshoe up on the snow, putting my knee on it, and then move my other one forward to try to crawl out of the hole that I had, you know, kind of was in. And then I fell through. He heard it, took off. No different than uh, elk or a deer would. Just took off like no, like there was no tomorrow, and I never saw him again. <sighs> so that was February. Went up again in, in uh, April. Went up in May. Didn't go up in June because it was just a free-for-all with a bunch of different hunters up there. And then, I, and then I went up in July, and there was a two-week lull where there was no hunters in the field besides me and the guy who bought the governor's tag. They, Arizona's really screwed up on the Kayabab. I don't know if a lot of people realize this. They're trying to eliminate that herd. Somewhere in history, they figured out that buffalo ain't native to Grand Canyon National Park, so they want to exterminate them. And so they told the DOW there they had... They wanted to keep that herd right around 350. Well, it was 800-plus when I was up there. And before, they used to hunt them like two or three weeks in the spring, two or three weeks, three weeks in the fall, have a 100% harvest rate, and nothing near, near the park because the buffalo had no idea where the park boundary was because they only got hunted twice a year. So they were way outside the park. Now they know where the park is. They've educated them because they hunt them year-round. There's buffalo season year round so obviously they've educated the buffalo and but this two-week period in july just before i'm heading back up to alaska is uh is and it's the pre-rut too they there was nobody there besides me and the guy who bought the governor's tag and again i was working with russ jacoby checking the cameras giving him the sd cards and i went to one particular camera that showed a buffalo coming out of the park and but he was real nocturnal. There was a daytime picture of him, but the other pictures was nocturnal. And so I'm over there. I mean, I'm getting crunch time, and I'm, like, crawling my hands and knees, looking at these different buffalo trails, trying to figure out which one he's using coming in because it's a full moon. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to figure out how he's coming in out of this salt. And sure shit, the first time that he'd been out, like, during the day like that, I'm there at 7.30 in the morning, I hear a crack break, a branch break, look up, and I see a hump of a buffalo coming towards me. And I'm like, I mean, instantly my heart's racing a 1,000 miles an hour. I know where he's coming. He's coming to the salt that's, you know, 80, 90 yards behind me. So I went hauling ass back to the salt, got on a tree that was, like, 20 yards away, and he was walking down the trail that I was on, smelt me, and took off. Oh, and smelt the smelt me on my hands and knees. I mean, he smelt the trail. The wind was right, but when he was standing where I was just now sitting, trying to figure out, trying to find his tracks in those pine needles, it he he smelt me. So he took off, but he didn't tack off back towards the park. He kind of made a big old circle, 
And I could hear him crashing, and he, he still wanted that salt so bad he came to it. But now he's 20 yards away facing me, and I can't, there's no way I can shoot him. And so, thank goodness, you know, I had that time because I was, I was, I was so, and the adrenaline was running like this. My dream was going to come true. My childhood dream was standing in front of me 20 yards away, and I couldn't get, I couldn't shoot. There's no shot on a buffalo head on like that. So, the wind, the thermals are starting to change. Like this happened at 7:30 in the morning, so we all know what happens, you know, you know, as the day progresses. So I, I felt it starting to hit me wrong. So I said, okay, I'm going to have that millionth of a second when he, he whirls and turns. I'm going to get the shooting. Well, exactly that happened, and he whirled because he smelt me. But when I stepped behind the tree, he caught my movement, and he stopped. Well, the arrow was already on its way, and I just shot him right through the heart, and the arrow blew completely through him. Again, I was using my 70-pound palmer again. He went about another 20 yards after that, so now he's 40 yards, turned around broadside, and I hit him again. The arrow blew completely through. Awesome. And this, this one here was right above the heart, and that's a long shot for me. I don't shoot past 30, but, I mean, this is my 77th day. I'm going to get my money's worth. I'm going to shoot as many arrows as I can. Yeah. And I hit him good again. I mean, both arrows would have killed him. Then he went about another 20, 25 yards. It was kind of quartered away, standing still, but quartered away. And this one here, I put all buried the fletching all the way back there by the liver. And then he just continued to walk uphill, which was amazing. Kept going uphill, and then I watched him, and he just nosedived and died right in front of me. He never made it. He made it 80 yards and died. That's uh, awesome. So, I was able to put him down, and and you know I heard all these horror stories, and I helped Jurass with a couple of the buffalo they killed with a rifle, where they were emptying a whole twenty, you know, a box of twenty, you know, three thirty-eight into these buffalo, and they were just hauling ass still, and they're having to retrieve them out of the park. There was a big investigation, and the park worked with them real well. As long as they could prove they shot them outside the park, it was always good. But I'm thinking, but as we all know or experienced bow hunters, animals die because they hemorrhage. It's no different than cutting yourself with a razor blade when you're trying to open a box or something, and you're like, shit, where'd this blood come from? You didn't realize you cut yourself. And that's how an arrow is. It it can blow in and out of an animal, and what they're hemorrhaging like crazy inside, bleeding inside, you double-lunged them, whatever, but they don't know what happened to them. They, you know, we've all seen it. I mean, I mean, it's, and if you haven't seen it, it it's it's neat to see where that animal can run out there and act like he's kind of drunk and then fall over dead. He doesn't really know what happened to him. And they die quicker that way, whereas a buffalo or any animal that absorbs the shock of a 338, especially if it's a bullet that that's, should be used, one that's going to mushroom and never exit, he's stopping, you know, 3,100 foot-pounds of 1,000 pounds of energy, so he knows he's hit. Instantly, he's going to have that adrenaline plumping through him. Instantly, he's going to be... He's going to be dead on his feet, but he's just not going to know it. And they can still go another mile or two, not even knowing they're dead. They're running on pure adrenaline and shock. So that's what's so advantage over bow hunting in that situation where everybody's like, God, you know, so many, so many of these animals make it back to the park and we're shooting them with, you know, these great big guns made for buffalo. And here you, yours made it 80 yards and piled up. You know, it's just a different, I think it's a different mindset of the animal you're harvesting shooting them with a bow as compared to a, a, a gun. And, or if you bump them, 
you know, with a bow, and, and which happens. You're, you think that you've waited long enough. Then they know you're after them, or anybody that's, you know, if the wind's not right, you know, I, when I follow a blood trail, I, you know, if I think they're alive still, I don't, I try to do half, half moon circles in the direction I think he's went, so he, so he hopefully not smell me. But all that, if you, if you bump them, then you can get that adrenaline pumping in a, in a bow shot animal as well. But um, if everything works out good, uh, I think nature's on your side shooting them with a bow. Yeah, that that, deal. those wild animals, they are so tough. And like you said, when they get that adrenaline, it is amazing what they can do for sure. What do you think he weighed on the hoof? Uh, man, I'm no expert at that. I'm going this by Russ, probably um, 1,400 pounds, something like that. Yeah, it's just a giant animal. So what you were shooting the Palmer 70-pounder. What was your arrow setup? Uh, it was – I had three wood arrows. My only my last wood arrows that I ever had that uh, – my last three wood arrows with the, had the 90-pound spline. And my other arrows was the – was the Carbon Express um, that uh, um, that balanced out to be the same about you know 600 600 grams of what my arrow was. I was shooting the Palmer Broadhead up front on the Carbon arrows, and I was shooting uh, Snuffer on my wood arrows. Okay, I didn't know Palmer had a broadhead. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, he's yeah he's got an insane broadhead, and they fly. I'm not. I mean, I I promote Palmer anytime I can, but his his broadheads they're like a a muzzy on steroids. I mean, okay. it's a it's a four blade, but it's got an inch and little over five eighths cutting radius on the big blade, and then back down to like an inch and three eighths on the smaller blade, uh, the bleeder blades. I mean, and, and they're resharpable. I mean, they're like a pocket knife type blade. They're and they're 160 grains. They're they're a really good broadhead. I've I've shot. That's what I shot my brown bear with. That's what I shot my grizzly bears with. That's what I've shot. You know, my mood. Okay, I mean, it, that's like that. kind of like the Fred Eichler head that that Muzzy used to make. Then, kind of, kind of, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. that's awesome. And, and Fred Eichler and Fred Eichler sold Mike thirty-five acres on his ranch, and they live right across the street from each other. Oh, okay. Yes. I knew they they're in Aguilar, Colorado. Friends. Yeah, yeah, they're really so, good friends. So, what was the pack out like with that big beast? It, it it wouldn't have been that bad. Um, I thought I was going to do this whole thing by myself. When I got on the radio and told Russ that I'd harvest this thing, he goes, man, don't touch it. I want to take some pictures, da-da-da-da-da. So meanwhile, I'm, I mean, he's, he's with the governor tag guy, and <laughs> so it took him about an hour to come over to me. He left the governor tag guy where they had seen some buffalo or hoping some buffalo were coming out of the park. So I, I'm flagging a trail on how close I can get my vehicle, because in Arizona, they got a law. Once you got an animal harvested, you can, as long as you don't cut any new trees, you can, if they're down trees or whatever, or they're standing dead, you can kind of manipulate the forest a little bit. But you can get an ATV. I don't want to own an ATV, but you can get that kind of stuff to them. Yeah. So I'm thinking how I can get my truck. And I got my truck with about a half mile of this buffalo. So I figured I got my work cut out for me, um, nine, ten trips to get this thing out. And so I flagged, you know, as close as I could get my truck. Russ shows up, and he's like, I can get my truck all the way to this thing. I'm like, there's no freaking way. <laughs> and, well, he got his truck all the way to my buffalo. 
So I, I wish I could say that I lost 100 pounds packing this thing out and I ruined <laughs> two or three backpacks. But uh, the truth of the matter is, Nelby was able to winch it up, come along it up onto a flatbed and, and get it out whole. That's perfect, wow. man. That's awesome. I wish I had a better story on that one. <laughs> and, but well, I don't, and, I got a, and I got a sarcastic, because uh, Aaron let me use one of his packs, and uh, he said, make sure you get a picture of you using this thing. So <laughs> as this buffalo is hanging in the tree, I back up to it with that backpack. I'm like, I strapped the whole freaking buffalo <laughs> to the backpack. Oh, that's and, awesome. And it looks real. I mean, it looks real. It looks like I got a rigor mortis buffalo stuck on the back of my backpack. <laughs> So what better promotion is that for Kafaro, you know? But Yeah, for sure. Oh, that is awesome. so cool. That's super cool. Yeah, well, heck, you, you definitely uh, burned some boot leather uh, to get it done anyway. Yeah, I mean, I have a great wife. I mean, a lot of hunters congratulate their wives, but I truly don't. I mean, who's going to let their husband go out 77 days and six different trips to Arizona to go to go do this kind of stuff? So she, she definitely had my back on that one. Okay. Yeah, that's so cool. So, uh, being from Colorado, are you a big uh, elk hunter? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of gotten stagnant over the last 10, 11 years. I've been guiding for Jonah, with Jonah's Alaskan Outfitter. So, I head up to Alaska, you know, the end of July, and I don't come back till the middle of September. So, I typically have only had four or five days worth of hunting before it closes. So, I'm not haven't been really picky i've been able to harvest still get my elk harvested every year but i haven't been able to you know really put uh you know the big bulls down i did shoot one you know, over by Vail, colorado three years ago that was like that 320-ish type bull um and i only had three days to hunt and went up there and <laughs> was able to get wow. lucky and and get him done last year I got it a client in uh, in Alaska for a doll sheep hunt, and for my gratuity, he told me he could, I could hunt his ranch. And it was, and um, I've never hunted private property in my life, so I'm like, man, you know, this this is going to be awesome. And he showed me pictures of some of the bulls, and I know a couple people that has hunted his ranch. And there's a lot of 350 type bulls that are hanging out on this guy's property. And so last year I got to hunt it, and I didn't get to shoot the bull that I wanted. I mean, I, it's just one of those things, just, I wouldn't say a rookie mistake, just, uh, you know, shit happens when you're, when you're hunting. I, there was a 370 type bull up there that I was after and there was a canyon between me and him and I know he was bugling out of his bed. It was like one o'clock in the afternoon and I was, I bugled and he bugled back. I bugled again. He bugled back and he's not moving. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to sit down and eat my sandwich. I mean, it's, it's, it's 1 o'clock. I mean, you know, kind of been dogging him all morning long. Well, I just get my first bite into that sandwich, and then I hear him bugle 60 yards away. So he was coming quiet. He didn't make a peep, and it was coming. So I just scrambled, and this big, huge tree had fallen down, and I wanted to run him parallel to it, wanted to get down to where the root pattern was, where it kind of pulled the earth up, and... It was almost like a pit right there, and I didn't get there. And so here he is, uh, 20 yards on the other side of this tree that had fallen down. And the only thing holding up the trunk was the branches of this ponderosa pine. And so I couldn't get, I couldn't get an arrow to him. So I'm like crawling as close to that tree as I could get. Kind of got my limbs up in there to where I could get get my arrow pulled back. And I pulled back the string, and I had this this 
twig that was followed my string all the way to my face. And it was really distracting. I mean, I, I, I had to get that thing away from me. So I kind of crawled up in there a little further so that that, that branch was now uh, up against my shoulder and the side of my neck, but my upper limb was, was clear. I mean, I was able to go. And the whole time this bull was being patient as hell for me to shoot him. And this is a, a really big bull. I mean, he's, he's blue Nacraca class. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's solid 370-type bull. And I pulled back the air, pulled back my bow, kept on leaning forward to get away from all the debris on that upper limb, and I wasn't paying attention to the lower limb, and my limb smacked the dirt on the ground in front of me, and my arrow made it out there about 10 yards, and that was my chance at the, the big guy. But this ranch was loaded with the with bulls that were in that 330, 340 class bulls. I mean, just loaded. And um, so it was the final day, final hour, and this was all on video. Jonah was taking video of me. Uh, we called in a bull, and after I had a wrestling match with my Sitka hoodie that has a built-in face mask, um, after I got straight through straightening that up, I finally got this bull came in, and I shot him, and, I mean, he's a 20-yard shot, and he went out there, and like I said, it's all on video. He piles up, makes it out there another 30 yards, and dies. But um, And he was he was that 325 class, but... I could have shot those every single day on that ranch. Um, and I turned down a lot of bulls that were much bigger, but um, you know, I still had a really good hunt. And then I had four or five days left of Idaho. My buddy, Jim Ponciano, which lives there in Oregon as well, he uh, said, man, things are rocking and rolling in Idaho here. Get your ass up here. So I went up there and got real lucky and, and was able to uh, shoot like that uh, 345-class bull with only three days left of the season there in Idaho. So I had a really good elk season last year. Wow, that's amazing. So when you're hunting the public lamb, what's your what's your tactic? Are you uh, going into wildernesses and bivying? Are you a big uh, bugling, cow calling? Like maybe speak to that a little bit as far as your tactics go with elk. I, I love bugling in elk. I love calling in elk. Um, anybody that's done it knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but I, I mean, Colorado, we're just... I mean, for an example, in 2015, we had, I think it was 26 or 26, 26,000 bow hunters. And then the year after that, it went to 48. And so, I mean, Colorado's grossing about 10,000 people a month. And it's just, it's just getting tougher and tougher. And the old cliche of, of, you know, if you get a half mile off the road, you're never going to see another hunter. That used to be the case. And ever since the invention of ATVs, it's made a lot of hunters, so-called hunters, very lazy. They'll go as far as that, that ATV is going to get them, but that's about as far as they're going to go. So I'm a firm believer that 10% of the hunters out there that are true hunters um, kill 90% of the game that are harvested, and I don't care what state you're in. Um, it, it's, not, it's not very many people that are doing most of the harvesting, most of the killing. And in Colorado, it's just getting harder and harder now. I don't know if it's all because of people eating better or just <laughs> whatever. I mean, <laughs> I'm seeing more people where I never saw them before. And so to have the woods to myself, getting back in there five, six, seven miles um, and never seeing a soul and having all these elk that aren't bugle smart, that uh, haven't had everybody and their brother show, you know, bugle every brand of elk call out there at them. And that's that's going away. I mean, it's going away big time. I and mean, everything in Colorado, 
as far as a draw tag has turned into a once-in-a-lifetime tags. I mean, the, the units that were one or two points, even as a few as four or five years ago, are now seven, eight points. Um, so it's really getting a lot tougher. I mean, I've, I've hunted over-the-counter tags because I drew this tag in, on, uh, that I hunted on this private ranch with 26 elk points. Jeez. Wow. Now, it only, took, it only took eight to draw the tag. Um, i just been doing over-the-counter or putting down first choice, a unit that I, that I was hoping to draw, but second choice and draw my second choice where it was still a draw unit, but it was an undersubscribed draw unit. And I was still able to get a lot of elk hunting in, but uh, with, I didn't really want to burn that kind of point, so I've been putting it for unit 2, 201, 10, as I've guided in those units, I've held some people out in those units, and I really felt I could have shot, you know, a 380-type bull in any of those units I just mentioned. But it's that's how many points it would take. But now that I'm guiding in Alaska, and, you know, I've, if, I, if I burn 26 points for a unit 201 tag, I want to be able to hunt the whole season. And that would cost me quite a bit of money just not being able to go up there and guide in Alaska. So... I really had to take it seriously. So when I drew last year, my season ended with my second. Well, actually, I had a grizzly bear hunter. I was done September 1st, where I'm usually going into September, and uh, so I could give myself a fair shake at this elk hunt. But that's why I had those preference points. So if an opportunity like this came along, if I didn't draw 201 first, or you know, two or ten, that if a, a, an opportunity like this came along to be able to hunt this private property on a on a very well, you know. Um, demanded type ranch um i had the preference points to do it so i was able to i i have no regrets i wish i'd have shot a bigger bull but um i i have no regrets yeah it sounded like an awesome hunt and that's a good kind of segue we wanted to talk to you a little bit i read in your article in that epic outdoors i think you were talking about the you know one of the big problems with the western states draw system is the recruitment of the youth and all that and Maybe we could get into that a little bit. Your your opinions on how how the draws are going out west, and and basically the repercussions of that. Yeah, and also uh, we were brought um, kind of together by uh, Marv Clinky, and you had alluded to um, you know some stuff going on in Colorado uh, that I think is part of this whole po- politics on bow hunting and. Um, you'd also alluded to seeing a lot more people in the backcountry. It seems to be, there's just a lot more people bow hunting. So yeah, if you could dive into all that, we'd, we'd love that. Well, yeah, the point creep is just getting insane in all states, but Colorado, I think other states have really thought it through and they're kind of, they've kind of done some things to, to kind of smooth it over a little bit where you got an opportunity every year. Colorado, you don't. Colorado's the worst state in the United States as far as, uh, so the, the lack of interest in really giving a shit about people being able to draw a tag or for their youth. And, um, and what I mean by that is, you know, Colorado, and, you know, there's going to be some guys that argue it. Um, I mean, the average age of a Colorado bow hunter, Colorado hunter here, I don't know what it is in Oregon, but is in the 50s. That's the, that's the average age of a hunter. So should the DOW be out there trying to recruit and try to get into the mindset of these younger generations that are going to, carry this on um you would think they would and and they're not uh they give them a duck season it opens up one weekend before the real duck season but how does that compare to 
going up, you know, a couple of days ahead of time with your dad, your grandpa, your uncles, setting up a wall tent, getting a wood burning stove going, and cooking on a on a you know Coleman stove, and the the prestige dish of that. I mean, that's something that sinks into a kid that he's got butterflies and can't do his homework. I mean, he just can't wait to go because that's how you get into the bloodstream, not, you know, an hour and a half duck hunt. And they, they just fight that tooth and nail. They're just not going to allow it to happen. But as far as the point creep goes, like my daughter, there's a half dozen units in the state of Colorado, and she's 21. She could never live long enough to draw. It'll never happen. And, and every year there's more units that are turning into once-in-a-lifetime. And I think Nevada does it really well. I think Arizona does it really well as opposed to, and this is the options I've given them. It's like in Arizona, yeah, my daughter, she has one point. I have 20 points. She's got one chance of drawing, but she has one chance for that computer to grab her. Now Arizona does it. If it's a unit that has 15 tags, if you draw a number between 1 and 15, you have a tag. So I got 20 opportunities for that computer to randomly give me a number between 1 and 15. Sarah, my daughter, has one opportunity, but she still has an opportunity, as opposed to Colorado, where she has zero chance. It ain't going to happen. And this fabricated thing they have with a hybrid tag, you know, there's there's thousands of people putting in for one tag. I mean, that's just an illusion. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a fix for anything. So um, that's that's kind of where I'm going. And then on top of that, they average. They average. So let's say Grandpa has 30 points. He's been putting in for a long time. Dad has 20. Sarah has one. Well, every other state averages. Colorado goes to the lowest person. So me, her grandpa and me would go to one point. What? I mean, who in their right mind would ever come up with that one? I mean, why not? Why not? You don't necessarily have to go to the highest person. That ain't fair to the people that have points less than that. But why not average 30, 20, and 1 and come up with the numbers so you have you average throughout? So... But they don't even do that. Um, and they also have in Arizona where you can will your preference points. So Grandpa's too old to hunt. God, he's been putting for a tag, hasn't drawn, hasn't drawn. Now he's, he's too old to hunt. But, God, it would be a blessing in his heart to give his preference points to his granddaughter. Well, that's cool, except for Colorado. So there's a lot of things they can do um, that they just kind of just turn, uh, turn in their face to or won't listen to. And I've I've been a thorn in their side in regards to exercising this thought pattern of they got to get something done with this point creep. Yeah. Um, and I'm not to not to throw anything anybody on the bus, but even with Epic Outdoors and you know, you know Hunt and Full Magazine, and they those kind of things are just uh, they go out there and they you get you get somebody that um, let's say that got lucky and they drew a tag and they shot this great big bull. Everybody is getting into this whole mindset of it's a competition now. They want to be, they want to rub shoulders with Garth Carter. They want to say, hey, they're the ones that told Garth Carter to go here. Well, any real hunter is going to keep that close to his chest. Yeah, he's going to take the picture, but make sure he doesn't show any background. Yeah. He's going to, he's going to, he's, he's, this is going to be sacred. And if he sees another person in his sacred spot, he's going to know that other person earned it. And it's going to be a handshake. It's going to be, hey, man, if you're in here, you've earned it. I mean, we're all good here. Every single one of my best friends came from meeting them in the field hunting. And, but all of a sudden, you're meeting people in the field. Well, how would you find out about this? Well, I saw it on you know, some social media, some epic outdoors, some hunting fools. Like, it's kind of like in my mind, 
you didn't earn it. You took a shortcut, and everybody looks for shortcuts, and I'm not knocking that. But I'm not somebody that's going to eavesdrop on somebody when you hear them talking about a hunting unit. I just, maybe I'm old school, maybe I'm old-fashioned. I'm just, uh, I'm not going to do that. And and it's the places, like I say, that I've never seen anybody before. You know, you, you bump into them, you try to be cordial, and I am cordial. Well, what, what brought you here? Oh, didn't you read this on this? Or didn't you hear it on the, you know, it's on YouTube? Or, I mean, it's like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> You know, yeah, it comes with GPS coordinates. It comes with a whole bit. I'm like, who in their right mind would ever do that? So I think a lot of this, and I was really surprised at the outdoors because I I said this to them. I'm like, I'm not a fan of what you guys do. Yeah, yeah, you're making a living on on hunting, and I'll I'll pat you on the back for that. But as far as from the guys that that don't have the money to buy a landowner tag every year, that that are just just blue-collar workers, that have that have gone out and spent months and months scouring void country, and all of a sudden find this honey hole, and then some idiot tells you about this honey hole. Um, that it, it it makes me crossways. So I I and that's my personal opinion. How far you want you can edit that out if you want to or not. But no, that's no, great. We like that. We, yeah. like, we like it. I mean, um, this is uh, you know we're into the whole hunting the hard way and. And earning, uh, earning your way, and yeah, the internet and technology, uh, instant gratification amongst uh, the younger generations—it's changing things. And woodsmanship seems to be a, a lost skill, and you know that's something that we'd like to promote and and bring back. Yeah, I mean, I and I, I'm glad to hear that because they really—I talked to Aaron a little bit about you guys last uh, yesterday, saying so they got the phone call and Marv kind of promoted it and. And he said, he goes, no, you guys are a real class act, and I'd get along with you guys just fine. And I'm glad that, and, and I hope there's a whole lot of people listening to your show that they kind of respect the value of not only putting meat on your family's table, but doing it on your own. I mean, finding out, you know, going out there and just looking at maps. I mean, now with GPS and Google Earth, I didn't have that when I was doing it. I mean, I'd, I'd go get a GPS map, you know, seven-minute map, and I'd look at, God, that, that kind of looks like an intermittent stream. There could be some wallows along there. That could be an aspen meadow based on the forest there. But, you know, I can't tell. It's all in black and white. It's all, you know, on a map. So I got to go up there and I got to do it. I got to go in there and I got to hike in there. And I got to do the minutes and everything on this map so I can find out what the GPS coordinate is so I can plug it in. And I'm doing it the old-fashioned way. I'm, I'm finding it. But when I find it and all of a sudden here's this, you know, here I, I get to this one valley, and it's got grass up to my ass. It's, it's it's got water running through it. It's like, God, why ain't there any deer and elk here? And then I go to the next one, and there's no deer and elk there either. It's like, God dang, this is like the most awesome-looking country I've ever seen in my life. Then I get to the third drainage, and there are all the deer and elk. I look over my shoulders like, God, this looks just as good, if not better, right? This came through. What makes this so special? And then working with the Colorado Division of Wildlife when I was in high school, keeping track of their bighorn sheep, in a unit, you know, talking to the biologists, they go, well, the nutrients, the, the ground, and that, that, the minerals in that ground, where that grass is going, and it's the same grass, it tastes different. It has more nutrients in it. They like this. So that's my honey hole. That's what I found. And, and then you, you tell a friend about it. You say, man, keep this close to your chest. I mean, I really worked hard on this. And the next time you go there, you can't even find a place to park. And then he lit the cat out of the bag. So, even though I've made a lot of friendships in the in the field, 
I've, I've also lost some friendships over something like that. Just, you know, letting them into your, I wouldn't say private space, letting them into something that you, you really, you want to get that into their blood. You want them to get their first elk, and they just haven't been having no luck, and I'm kind of sympathetic to that, and he's carrying around a recurve or a longbow, and I'm like, God dang, i got to get this guy's first elk. I'm going to take him with me. And to get burnt, uh, it's, 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 it's an unwritten rule, but it's a sign of respect that ain't respected sometimes. Yeah, that's true. I think that falls into that code of woodsmanship. And, you know, if a friend takes you to a spot, um, enjoy it and, you know, ask him if he'll take you back. But uh, don't don't go there without him. Don't uh, burn his bridge. I mean, that I think a lot of the younger generation, they think uh, it's like you're just handing it over to him. And I think that those things are, are kind of learned behaviors and it, it's tough. I mean, scouting is the name of the game and it's, you know, we're, we're big on, you know, adventure, but to have that adventure, I think that's that hard work of finding those, uh, honey holes and burning that boot leather and, and find, you know, making it happen. Um, you know, that, that, uh, that adds to to the whole adventure. Yeah, and it's and as far as you know, like the you know the kids go. I mean, it's uh, the instant gratification. You're spot on with that. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, I mean, you guys are at the age that you weren't doing this either. But I mean, you know, you see the commercials now where, you know, you're trying to get kids to go outside and play for 30 minutes a day. I mean, I got my ass beat because I didn't come in to eat dinner. I mean, yeah. it was right. Yeah, it was. It was hard to keep a kid. I mean, everybody was in, I mean, you, you, whether you're playing softball, whether you're having BB gun wars in the field with, with your parents not knowing about it, or you were, you were out there, you were outside. And if you were yeah. at Joe's house when dinner bell rang, well, you ate at Joe's house. And if Joe was at your house when the dinner bell rang, you ate at your house. I mean, that's, now that's child abuse. I mean, not to know, where's your kid out in the neighborhood? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, he's out playing stickball. I mean, nobody walks to school anymore, at least not in Colorado. That's child abuse, too. They make your kid walk to school. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's it's all changed. So that instant gratification to try to get into these kids is instrumental. You're not going to take them up, even rifle hunting. You get, opening morning comes up, and you've been building them up about this hunt, and they open up, and then all of a sudden it looks like a pumpkin field out there with all the orange. And the only deer note they see, you got their tongues hanging all the way to the ground. They've been chased from one canyon to the next to the next. Yeah. I mean, um, I used to go camping as a kid all the time with my friends, with no adults, and I never have heard, I don't hear of that anymore, kids just going out, uh, you know, out to the back forty or up to uh, into the woods to go camping. Uh, well, hell you know. no, they might get a flat tire and not be able to get somebody to change it for them. You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, even got commercials about that shit. You know, yeah. well, our insurance don't cover that. I'm like, are you freaking? What kind of kid doesn't know how to change a goddamn tire? But it's just that's where that's where we're going with it. And I don't know if you read this in Epic Outdoors. I, I touched on this a little bit. You know, and. My dad, I mean, I hounded him and hounded him, and that's exactly what the article says. I hounded him as a very young kid. Man, I, I, we drive by this one spot. Every time we go up elk hunting over here, we drive by this one spot. I, have you ever gone in there? No, we haven't gone Let me go in there. So finally he called my bluff. And, and like I was telling you, it was like I think it was like 13 and a half, 14 years old. He, he dropped me off, and three days later, came and picked me up um and that first day i was like 
I might have had my lower lip sticking out a little bit. I might have been a little homesick because now that, I'm by myself here, you know. And <laughs> and I'm, but that after that first night, um, I knew that this is what I was going to be doing the rest of my life. I mean, I never looked back, and I I've always been that way. Uh, I used to run a trap line as a county trapper for Gilpin County, Clear Creek County, Wells County. I mean, a very young kid, how I bought my first car, how I bought my first house, was trapping money. Um, I mean, I, I've always been in the outdoors, and I had my own, you know, part of a rafting company. Um, I just uh, look back now and, and look at the future, I mean, the kids these days, and I'm, I, it's not disappointing. It's just, um, it's like, what are they missing? I'm going to tell you a real quick story in regards to that. My daughter, she's seven, eight years old. I finally get her for a birthday party. I live in the mountains. So for this birthday party, I set up a teepee, and they're going to spend the night in the teepee. I got a little pond on my property that's only like 15 feet by 15 feet that I throw some fish in, and Sarah would go out there and catch some fish. It was all catch and release. But I'm, you know, I'm going to invite all these girls. So my ex-wife, she calls. She goes, you know, you've got to give all these girls a, a present. I'm like, what? She goes, you know the birthday parties you're taking Sarah? She always comes home with something. And I'm like, I never thought about it. She goes, yeah. I mean, it's like every kid's a winner. I go, you, I mean, it's, it's just changed. And I don't, I don't know how much I go with it. But so now you, the people you invite to the party, they got to have a gift too. So I'm like, all right. Well, I bought them all a pocket knife. And um, so I tell all the parents this, and this is what's going to happen. We're going to shoot BB guns the first day. We're going to, if they spend the night, then we're going to graduate to a 22. We're going to. Let them know, and this goes back to giving some, you know, some gun speeches at the at the school and that kind of stuff. So, anyways, they, they're all they're all on board, and so they show up, and so I had them with this knife, cut a piece of a willow, and I gave them some monofilament, tied to the end of that string to the end of the end of their piece of willow they had, tie a hook on it, throw it out there, and these fish were going to eat anything. So they caught their first fish they've ever caught in their life. All these girls. And then I had them take this same knife and gut their fish. And then I showed them every one of them how to make a fire, put it out, make a fire again, put it out. And we finally got the last girl. We left it going, gave the girl some, some aluminum foil, some butter, had them wrap up their fish. And all these parents are like, my kid's never going to do that. I mean, she's a girly girl. She's never, these kids soaked it up like a sponge. I mean, they could not get enough of it. And they all caught their fish, gutted their fish, and ate their fish out there with their fingers, out there on their knees around this campfire. And then a bear came down where we threw all the fish guts, so they got to see a bear. Of course, now I know the parents want their kids sleeping in the teepee. I'm like, no, nah, it's, it's, it's all going to be good, and I'll stay here with them. And so to those girls, that was a camping trip. Here these, these people all lived in Colorado their whole lives and never been camping. And they got these kids. I mean, you're in Colorado. How could you not be up in the mountains? And Sarah's like, well, this is my front yard. This is, I mean, this is, well, maybe she's just real lucky and the other kids are unfortunate. I don't buy it. All these people are a 30-minute drive from the mountains. Yeah. But it's just, it's just one of those, it's just a, a kind of a, a soft example of it. You just kind of get into these kids. Um, uh, they'll soak it up. I, I absolutely. I think that all we can do is, like you said, mentor, is to get our kids outside get their friends outside. I mean, even adults, grown adults. Uh, you know, I've taken some guys hunting that are in their thirties who you get them 
three, 400 yards from the pickup truck and they are uh, shitting bullets. And they're like, well, how are we going to get back to the truck? And yeah, yeah are we going to have to sleep out here? Like they just wig out because they're so removed from uh, wild places and wild things. And I think it just, it's just all about, uh, you know, doing our part and, and mentoring uh, people and getting them to spread it and get people uh, off uh, off of their phones and back into the woods. Yeah, but you know, I ask you, you know, how do you, how do you get there? I mean, back yeah. when I was in school, you, you, you I took hunter safety in the sixth grade. I mean, it right. was an elective in the school. Um, you could go to the library and pick up a field and stream, an outdoor life, uh, uh, whatever. But now those are all exempt, no different than God ain't allowed in schools anymore. You can't right. pledge allegiance let alone have a filled and stream magazine in a school. So, I mean, yeah. how do you, how do you do it? I mean, how do that's, you, how do that's you... true. I took, I, I shot my first recurve in the sixth grade in school or seventh yeah. grade in school. Oh, we had archery in school. I mean, uh, I mean, how do you, how do you get your foot in the door, especially with the school shooting? That seems to be the thing that could do these days. I mean, how do you even get your foot in the door to like cheat on our safety? Um, how do you even get your foot in the door to like, you know what? You guys are looking for electives. You, know, you, you want to go outside. I mean, in Colorado, it's an elective whether you want to do recess or go back to your phone for the 45 minutes you were deprived of it because you had to take math <laughs> class. So, I mean, so archery, I mean, you do it outside. You set it out there on the football field. I mean, I think they would have an overwhelming ex- response to the kids wanting to do it, but they don't even give these kids the option to do something outside. Or... Even field trips. I mean, we went to the top of Long's Peak on a field trip in sixth grade. We did these camping trips. Um, I mean, how do you how do you get back into it? I mean, you go to the principal and he'd be looking at you like you're freaking crazy. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's how, true. how do you get your foot in the door? I just, I mean, if, man, if somebody could give me that, I, I I'll sign up. And because I've I've been there, I've tried it, and uh, it's 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 no easy task. Yeah, I mean, I even battle. even archery hunting now, guys. Uh, feel like if they don't have uh you know ten thousand dollars worth of gear because that's what this guy on this youtube video has then the hunt's not going to happen they feel like they need all this stuff and it's like man you can just go out there and the, the clothes you wore to school or to work and get a bow and a rifle whatever and go hunting and it seems like everybody has to have a yeti cooler and head to toe in Sitka gear, uh, which I mean, Yeti coolers are—it's a nice cooler, and Sitka gear makes good products. But you don't have to have that to get into hunting. No, I mean I do a lot of—I've done a couple of video hunts and that kind of stuff, and and taken some pretty high-profile hunters in 33 years of guiding in Alaska, guiding all over. I do all the big horns. I mean, I do—I mean, all over the place. And I, if you if you saw Epic Outdoors and you saw my deal in there, every single picture in there. I wouldn't say every single, but 90% of them, I got a, a flannel shirt on, and I mean, just I don't, I don't have, I'm not decked out, but I've all, all the whole clothes I've gotten, I've gotten for free because <laughs> a lot of these guys are like, man, you're cramping our style. I mean, we're, I'm paying this guy twenty thousand dollars for us around the camera, and here you are walking around in your, in your wool shirt, and you know, it's just in your fatigues, and but you look at my pictures, I mean, I don't know if you guys still have it. That's what I'm wearing, and. uh it's not about the clothes, and you're right. It is awesome gear, and now that I've gotten it, because I've cramped enough people's style, they felt sorry for me, and I've, 
I mean, I wear it. I mean, I wear it uh, because it's it's functional and it works good. But you you make a very good point. You don't have to be the poster child for Sitco or Kuyu or First Light or whatever. You don't have to be their poster child to go out there hunting. Um, you, and like my first deer and first elk was with a 50-pound fiberglass bow. I mean, you don't have yeah. to buy the $1,000 bow either. Yeah. Uh, you go on Craigslist, though, I mean, you can, you can pick up whether it be Compound, whether it be a Hoyt or a Matthews. I mean, as soon as they're a year old, they lose two-thirds their value. Um, and somebody wants the next best thing. So, I mean, yeah, just just get something, um, uh, and you'll make it work. And the kinetic energy out of these new arrows and broadheads these days is just uh, insane. So it, it, even if you're a person that don't, may not have the strength, to, you know, some of the, the kids out there is what I'm referring to, they don't need to have a 50-pound bow or a 60-pound bow. You can, you can get it done as long as you go to your – local professionals out there that have a traditional bow hunter shop or any kind of bow hunter shop that dial you in with the right weights and things like that for your arrow, they'll make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you don't have to have the latest and greatest from 2018 and, uh, God forbid your camouflage doesn't match. I mean, yeah, I think that that message really needs to, and you don't have to be expected to kill a 350 bull, uh, when you're a teenager or a, a 180 inch mule deer buck, I mean, guys need to go out and, uh, teach, you know, their children that there's more to the hunt. I mean, sure. We, we all like big mature animals. Um, but you know, that's no way for a young man to s- start out. Like, yeah, I've met some guys that are like, well, I haven't got an elk yet, but I've passed up a whole bunch of them the last couple of years just trying to get get my uh get a shot on a 350 bull and it's like i think they're the tv kind of warps the perception of some of these guys yeah i'm 100 percent behind you on that i mean it's it's turned into more of a competition than a hunt uh my picture album they go why do you have this in there this is a little forked horn this is a three-point buck this is i mean not that i take pictures of everything and not everything makes it into my picture album but when i first started a picture album those were in there and i just haven't taken them out and I mean, you, sh- I, you shouldn't. I you shouldn't. People I mean, need no. to see that. I mean, I, I, I shoot. I mean, I, I do. Now that I've been doing it for such a long time, I mean, I'll hold out till the till the last three days. Then, then there's a whole lot of animals that uh, better not walk in front of me. And, and I don't care what size you are, because I do like my bounty on the table, and I do like keep my freezers, you know, well packed so that. Uh, so that I can eat that wild game. And that's where I think a lot of the vision of wildlife, that's one thing I got onto them too, was, you know, hunter safety courses, you drop the ball. You need to go all the way from the field to the table. And and so many people are like, oh, my wife won't eat it because of that wild game taste. And I have a wild game fry like two or three a year. And people come over here and their wives will slap their husband up beside the cheek and say, how come your elk don't taste like this? <laughs> and right. It's one of those things, it's, it's you, did you let it cool? Did you let it age? I mean, did you chase it around yeah. for two hours before you found it? I mean, there's a lot of things that go into making that animal taste good, and everybody thinks they've got to overcook the hell out of everything with wild game, and it's 100% lean meat, so it's just the opposite. It's medium rare at best, and um, you don't have to marinate the shit out of it. Um, there's, I really think... I don't know how many hunters that I've guided. I mean, these guys got a lot of money, otherwise they wouldn't be doing these sheep hunts. They're standing above it, and they've never gutted an animal before. They've wow. never, they've, they've, 
and you just kind of think along with something like that that this guy's going to be well seasoned and and into the groove and and they're not and it's the same way with you know people I've helped it's it's just they've never quartered an animal before they could just show up with these meat saws and these axes I'm like no 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 you can do it with your two inch pocket knife I mean it's you, you don't need all this stuff that uh, that is out there thinking you had to build your kit to, to go hunting with to take care of this animal. And you don't stick the knife all the way in because then you get the guts all over you. The, you they drop the ball. They should have a course that takes you all the way through it. And a lot of that's going to have to be videoed because you're not going to have an elk on the classroom floor there cornering it out. But at least have them watch some kind of visual and have some speaker and still take a test at the end. And, yeah, well, uh, they're so, they're doing it. Um, I actually introduced my uh, cousin who is in his uh, mid forties to hunting, and he lives in California. And I was shocked when he told me he uh, uh, went to a class there where they brought in deer, and uh, I don't know if they were roadkill deer or what, but they brought in deer and showed them how to gut deer in this class. I was pretty impressed in a yeah, state like California of all places. Yeah, that is that is freaking awesome. Um, so that's that. I mean, that's a personal opinion again. That they more more families. If you made it look like a good idea, and uh, um, like a, the thing to do, or you'd be, I wouldn't say popular. What's I can't think of the word I'm thinking of. As far as feeding your family, putting that meat on your family's table, having it be a more prestigious thing, and then actually have them enjoy it, then I think a lot of these people that are on the fence as far as hunting goes would be. You know, they're eating these animals. They're enjoying it. I mean, it's, it's going good. I mean, it's because uh, so many people, because of the image that TV, social media, the hunting shows you're showing on TV are all this 180-inch mule deer, 180-inch whitetail, a 350-inch bull. They've turned into such a competition that why ain't they showing this kid's first buck? Why ain't they showing this kid's first doe? Why ain't they showing to kind of let you know that, it doesn't start there. It might it might end there, and that might be your focus. But for your buddy that was walking around saying I passed a lot of bulls, that's insane. You got to get a couple under your belt. Um, I mean, that's more the message I feel that they're really missing out on on these hunting shows of of making it such a competition to where these guys and even if they're making it up in their own little world, like God, I saw so and so shoot this 180 inch muley. And he turned down some bucks on TV saying, you know, that just wasn't where he wanted him to be. I'm a brand-new hunter. I've never done it before. That's not where this guy started. I mean, and, but they don't, they don't emphasize that enough. They don't emphasize that, you know, you know, I'm after this buck here, but, God, 20 years ago when I was a teenager or when I was in my 20s, got my driver's license, I'd have gave my left nut to shoot that buck. <laughs> I just let walk. Right. You know? What what are your thoughts and feelings um, here in Oregon? We've got a couple uh, opportunities for traditional bow hunting only areas, and me and Bob are pretty passionate about that. I mean, we don't want to take opportunity away from anybody, but we we think by having these opportunities, they can be available to everybody, and and in some of these areas, you're going to be able to go hunt. You know, not have to wait 15 years to draw a tag if you're willing to take up a lesser weapon that takes a skill set to learn to use. Um, it seems like it could behoove our uh, our uh, rankings of uh, bringing more people back into the tradition of, of bow hunting the way uh, it was originally attended 
to have these liberal seasons. I mean, how do you feel about that? And more opportunity too. I mean, a lot of these tags like you apply all over sounds like I do, you know, and I mean, if they look at it in that way, you could give out probably twice as many tags, you know, guys hunting with recurve, you're still not going to have as many, as much success, you know? So what are your well, thoughts on that stuff? I think it's a plus, plus, plus. I mean, for any, uh, for conservation and stuff like that, I don't think bow hunters should ever be considered a way of conservation. It's more of a recreation. It's more of a, because you're just not going to harvest enough animals to make an impact on the conservation. You're not going to be able to, it's like, hey, we got a population of 400,000 elk in this one area. We want to get this, we want to shoot this many animals. You can't, it's, it's, you're going to need the help of the rifle hunters. They're the one that's going to bring up the numbers. But where you're going to learn the appreciation of hunting, and I think even more with traditional than compound bows, I think what Oregon is doing, like I said before, is a plus, plus, plus. Because if you go out there like, man, i got a compound bow, but I really want to hunt this area, so I'm going to pick up a stick bow, what that's going to do for you is make you realize how much of a hunter you're going to be, better of a hunter you're going to be at the end of that season. You might not have harvested an animal, but you're realizing little tricks you had to be a bit a little more quieter to do a little more things with optics to kind of so the animals you know they're there before they know you're there i mean all the things you got to do to be a better hunter come from if you're a half-ass traditional bow hunter you could be a kick-ass compound hunter absolutely i'm I'm, rifle hunter i mean i'm i'm walking proof of that i we have this traditional mule deer hunt and i had all the latest and greatest uh, compound with you know all the bells and whistles and i got invited by a mentor to go hunt these mule deer in an area that only allow uh i think it's 15 years to get the rifle tag in that area or you can draw it every year with a traditional bow and that's your option and so i picked up the bow and i learned to use it and i became proficient to the point where i sold my compound i I think that that could, like you said, it's also, um, it's not a management tool. It's an opportunity to get more guys into the field, uh, just like bow hunting was attended for. Uh, yeah, low harvest rate. We're, uh, we're, we, we have a low impact on the wildlife. You, you right, could, you a guy. In the field. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you, a can, guy, you, you can have those wall tent camps and the families coming up and, and keeping you, you, the kids, you know, involved and, and all that. That's yeah. the way I grew up, and it sounds like you did too, Harold. And and even in Oregon, you know, we, we realize that our issues with the deer and elk in Oregon aren't necessarily because of the compound. You know, they're, we have a lot of predator issues. They outlawed hunting with hounds here long ago and, and all that stuff. But But it's an opportunity. The reason they switched that area was because the deer numbers were down so low and they decided, well, we'll, we'll just do this traditional season. And it's, and it's helped, helped all the way around, you know, it's helped the deer yeah, numbers. It's I helped mean, all that. So, I mean, like having to wait 30 years in Arizona to get a bison tag, why not have a three month traditional only season or waiting, uh, three lifetimes to get a, uh, desert bighorn, which, you know, our friend Marv Klinky's been waiting on for 50 years, why not let a traditional guy go out and, I mean, the chances of him getting one is slim to none. He's going to have a, a low impact on the wildlife, but create opportunity for adventure, opportunity to gain revenue for the department um, and get guys into the field uh, to do some hunting. 
Um, but if you gave 10 tags to any weapon and 10 tags to a primitive weapon like a, a longbow and recurve, the chances oh, I aren't. Saying, I thought you were saying yeah. like unlimited type thing. No, no, no. no ha- have some draw op- opportunities for guys that want to go about it the hard way, and it's not going to be some kind of guarantee that they're going to fill that tag. But because um, there's a, I think there's a lot of guys that shoot compounds and rifles that would go, hey, this could be worth it for me to learn this skill set and, and learn to get in close uh, and pick up this primitive weapon if I can get these um, opportunities. Um, yeah, and sure. So instead of having to wait three lifetimes, maybe you're you'll get it at least once in your lifetime. Like you'll you'll know like okay, I, I'm gonna maybe it is a once in a lifetime, but you you know you're gonna get an opportunity at it instead of like here in Oregon, the chance of me getting to hunt a goat or a sheep is it's probably never gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I mean if they if they did, I mean I think every species and you know. I'm going to be a big thorn in the side, always have been with the Colorado Division of Wildlife, and I'm also going to be, I hope not a thorn in the side of the Colorado Bowhunters Association. Um, but I'm kind of throwing them under the bus a little bit with, on Aaron's program. They're really a good bunch of people, um, and I, it, but I'm not out to make friends. I'm not, I'm not out to make enemies, but I want, what my proposition was to them was, what can I do? to help you help me, me being a hunter. Because our Colorado Bowhunter Society, they, they've done some really phenomenal things, but decade ago. What have they done in the last 10, 15 years? I, I haven't found anybody that can tell me anything. Um, I got from 2002 hunting regulations of Colorado to 2018. I highlighted all the things we're losing. And I think the mindset of our, of the tradition, of the Colorado Bowhunter um, Colorado Bowhunter Society is, well, we don't want to rock the boat too much because we don't want to lose what we already have. Well, we're already losing. I mean, right. Colorado, I mean, the archery season is shorter days than the rifle season. Yeah. That's never happened before till this year. It's like, what the hell? And they say, well, you're not shooting enough sheep, so you take away days of hunting and you take away tags and you want me to shoot more sheep. And the only reason I'm bringing this up is what you just now said about the desert sheep. That already is 100% proof that we don't have an impact on harvests, but you can still get people out there hunting. Yeah, creating revenue. Creating revenue for the division of life. So if they can sell 10 archery tags, and there should be no such thing as any weapon, because already knows if you have a rifle tag, you can downgrade yourself to a bow anyways. Yeah, right. But so you could have a separate archery season. And, exactly. And then, and then, a, then a rifle season. And if... One of those, so right now in Colorado, what I'm going to do as a bow hunter, as a strictly 100% bow hunter, I'm going to put in for a rifle tag so I got more days to hunt. And I got better <laughs> odds because there's more tags available. How stupid was that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Doesn't make yeah. any sense. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of working. Marvin Clinky got me hooked up with Colorado Bowhunter Association. I went to a meeting with them. All they talked about was a rendezvous here, a 3D shoot here. Yeah, and a, yeah and, that's what and we're I'm experiencing like, the same thing on our end. I'm like, with I go, I'm here for five hours, and you haven't said one thing about hunting. Aren't you called the Bull Hunters Association? Yeah, yeah. amen. Yeah, we're, 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 so we're, Bob. we're battling the same stuff, and that's kind of why we're doing this, to, yeah, so to make, some, make a difference. Like, yeah, so, I mean, I don't want to 
I don't want to tiptoe. I don't want to. I mean, I can, I'm, I'm going to hit this thing full speed. I'm like, I, I'm going to go to the Vision of Wildlife. Um, and I don't know that I'm really a guy named Steve Hildy, which has been instrumental helping me. I mean, he knows a whole lot about the legislators. I mean, the legislation part of it, uh, the passing a bill to try to do things. So I said something to him about the Colorado Vision of Wildlife when they got my letter. I got a call back, and they're like, "Well, we're we really need to promote some money." I go, "Well, then." You're doing things every year, but they're stupid things because they have nothing to do with making money. I go, if you want to make money, we're the only state in the United States that doesn't have a spring bear season. Why not lobbying to get our bring spring bear season back? Why not let hunters shoot these bears? Last year we killed uh, countless bears because they want to start bringing back the deer. And they picked several units that the, they feel that the, the, the doe-to-fawn ratio, the cow-to-calf ratio, is being so detrimented by the black bear that they got to go in there and do some calling of the black bear. They're paying government people to do it where hunters would give their nuts to be able to go do it. Yeah, and they would yeah. pay to do it. We, so and, and, how much and, sense and, does that make? And implement uh, youth hunts in the spring for premier black bear units. Youth hunts, let the, let the kids... Youth or disabled veterans or yeah, uh, wounded warriors. I mean, they could do all kinds of things to, to, to really give them a, a big smile in the face even with the Republic of Boulder breathing down their ass, trying to shut down all the seasons, they could just, if they lobbied hard to bring our spring bear back season, that'd make up a whole lot of money in my mind. Um, and it would, it would help support their cause. So even if the Colorado Boulder Association knew, if the hunters knew they had their back, their numbers wouldn't be so far down as far as memberships. $30 a year is nothing as long as I know those guys are in there at the DOW fighting the point creep fighting shorten my days to go bow hunting short yeah. my tags be open to ideas like you just suggested have a separate bow season for desert sheep and rifle and you know your impact's going to be next to none but at least have it and that creates revenue i mean there's so many things they can do that they just closed the freaking door to that it's kind of got under my skin as you can tell <laughs> yeah <laughs> i love Absolutely, it I love but uh, we we'll don't get grease grease so i mean yeah. you got to do it and it's just like talking about that mentoring. Even if you only mentor one or two guys, maybe they go back and mentor their kids or their grandkids. Uh, you know, it, it creates an effect. I mean, you can... It creates a domino effect if done right. right. That's right. I mean... And that's uh, what we hope that our listeners are paying attention to this and, and, and not just, uh, you know, sitting back and going, well, that's not going to work and... You know, it's like you said, you know, we love traditional archers of Oregon, but they're so focused on 3D shoots. And are we uh, bow hunters first? Um, can we create opportunity for uh, bow hunting? Because I see there's a lot of spaces uh, to be filled where they can create revenue and give opportunity to uh, get out, get outdoors and do some hunting. Exactly right. If they would lobby for hunting, um, they would hunters would have their back, um, and they would get their, their their memberships would come up. Uh, they would be real rendezvous. They would be hunters talking about hunters. I mean, it would be uh, shaking hands out there and like, hey man, I you know how was your hunting season? This, that, and the other. Not what was your score in the 3D shoot. I mean, it um, you're not promoting hunting. So I don't know why it's called the Bow Hunting Association when they can't prove to me or show me what you've done for hunting. I right. Mean, and why would and I be a- people waiting 
18 years, 20 years to get this tag. I mean, some of these guys aren't even going hunting anymore. They're just buying the points and waiting their opportunity to get into some area. Um, and it's, it's kind of sad that, uh, they feel like that that's what they have to do in order to get a quality hunt. Yeah. And it's everything's so unpolitically correct. Like Canada shutting down their, their bear season. I mean, you can look it up. I mean, the reason why their government chose to do that, because for some reason, um, what do they want to call it? Um, um, feelings override science any day of the week anymore with the media. So yeah. Emotions, over- uh, uh, yeah, Miley Cyrus says, let's stop bear hunting, and everybody uh, jumps in. Right. So, so Canada's over there going, yeah, the biologists came in with stacks of paper, the thick of phone books, and we absolutely know that by doing this, we're probably going to lose our moose populations, or the, the cow-to-calf ratio is going to go way down. We know we have to do it, but we just wouldn't be that popular with our people. So, I mean, that's the mindset that we're fighting It's just – you know, not everybody needs to be a hunter. I mean, there's there's friends of mine that say, well, I can never shoot one myself, but God, invite me over anytime you're having elk steak on the grill. I mean, it, you don't have to be the one to do it, and it's it's not. It's you go with you go with science if you want to keep your wildlife. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it sounds like somebody in Oregon is really paying attention to the traditional end of it, and that's well, kudos to you yeah. guys as far as having this units. Well, the the door's been opened, but it's, you know, we've got a few areas, and I think that it could spread, but we need to put the work forward because it, it's proven, uh, you know, I think it's proven to work, but I, I see room for a lot more, and I would like to, to see that, and I think a lot of guys, um, even if they're not hunting with traditional equipment, I, they would see that opportunity and recognize it as a, as a great opportunity and you know uh pick that up even if they were only gonna pick up the bow and put in the practice to do that particular hunt it it, uh, could you know it could be a great way like i've said over and over again to get people in the field create opportunity and uh you know get revenue for uh our wildlife the bottom line is if they go up there with that stick bow and hunt that unrestricted unit because they have a stick bow the 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 worst there's no bad that's going to come out of it because they come back and say hey this ain't for me I'm going back to my compound I guarantee you it made them a better hunter whether they subconsciously know that or not if they went up there and chased animals around they could not help but try to get closer try to be quieter try to pay more attention to the wind try to use their optics more so even though subconsciously they might not blame it on that when they come back to that training wheel bow they're going to be better hunters by just yeah. one season of their belt trying to get close to an animal and I see the demographic, like we've talked about, um, of hunters, especially in traditional archery, is in that 50 to 65-year-old area. And so I, I, and I, I think that that's uh, a portion of our listeners. And, you know, we need these guys' help, uh, their experience, to, to push these things forward. Mm-hmm. And if you've got kids... It's awesome. Sarah's spoiled because she's introduced to it, and she has a dad that really likes the outdoors. But I didn't stop there. I'm like, Sarah, do you have any girlfriends that want to go? Do you have any? Right. And, and she did. Um, I mean, it was a tradition with the, I mean, even though she was in sixth grade when we had that teepee birthday party, I mean, all the way up until they graduated from high school, it was kind of a tradition. They came up here. No, no, they weren't sleeping in the teepee no more. They crashed down on the couch or whatever, but they sat around the campfire. It was really... 
I really stuck to them. You know, it really, yeah, it really made that impact. So yeah, if you if you're the listeners out there and you got kids and you're saying, well, I'm right on board with these guys. I, I my kid has shot his first deer. He has gone with me hunting. Um, see if your boy or girl has a friend that would like to go. Um, yeah, and and, and I mean, kinda, take them, take them mushroom picking, take them uh, fishing, take them trail. I mean, get them out into the outdoors at least. Get that started um, instead of dropping them off at the mall or. Uh, or the movie theater or whatever. I think uh, just, you know, getting these kids outdoors, they, they love it. Oh, the kids that I brought out, uh, I've mentored some kids, even going out there and they show up, you know, I give them a pair of binoculars, we got their glass in, and to put a bedded deer, or it doesn't have to be bedded, anything into a spotting scope. So they're I'm like, okay, well, there is something over there. And, you, and then you, you start out by, did you see anything? No, I don't see anything. Well, you know, it, it takes a trained eye to, to pick up some of this stuff. So, so you try to give them some landmarks. Now look over there. Sometimes they get it. Yeah, 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 I see it. Or they don't. Then you put it in the spotting scope. I mean, just to see the hair raise up on these kids' backs or girls and, and just like, oh, my God, there he is. I mean, they, they don't realize what they're walking by. So so many people out there, I think this is so important, that, that really think we shouldn't have honey because they never see a deer when they go out. They never see an elk. They never see bear. They never see mountain lion. Well, they don't know how to look either. I mean, and they're the type of people that if deer started going extinct, the numbers were down, this, that, and the other, they would read about it on their phones. Me and you would know about it because we're in the field and we're saying, what the hell just happened? We, would, no one have, we wouldn't have to read it. We wouldn't have to see it on TV. We would be the ones reporting it because we're the ones appreciating it. Right. As soon as they're out there appreciating it, spotting those deer off the side of the road, putting something in the spotting scope, no different than bird watchers, but now be animal watchers. Go find this stuff. Then they would realize, shit, there's a lot of animals out there. I've been driving by them for years. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been teaching my girls. I got three daughters. Bob's got a daughter. Uh, you know, not only just to spot them, but trying to teach them how to stalk them. You know, it may not be hunt season, but say, hey, let's see how close we can slide in on this deer. Yeah, my, my daughter's... Wildlife. <laughs> my daughter's three right. and... We were up in the woods yesterday, had her in a backpack, you know, hiking around, and she loves tracks. You know, there's still some snow up there and stuff, and she's just pointing out every track. Look, Daddy, there's a track. And I just so – it's so awesome, man. It's just – it's cool. Yeah, you got you to get them out there. My daughter's yeah. first elk, and uh, she doesn't remember this. She was in a baby backpack, and I'm like, God, I didn't have no babysitter. <laughs> I'm going elk hunting. I wasn't too far away. So I haul ass up there with her, and I'm – I get up this one trail, and I know I'm in the kind of in a little bit early, but I knew I was going to have some, you know, extra time with her. And I hear an elk bugle. I'm like, holy shit, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, this is like what every, you know, anybody that bugles elk, you can get something bugling that early. That's that's really cool. So I look over there, and I picked him up. He's bugling out of his bed. He's not, and I haven't bugled to him yet. So he's bugling. I'm like, well, so I let out a bugle. He bugles back, gets to his feet. And he's already marching towards me. Well, then, on the other side of me, 180 degrees around behind me, another elk is bugling. So now I'm between two elk that are bugling. I'm in the right spot. But now my daughter is trying to wrestle my goddamn bugle tube from me because now it's her turn. She's blowing spit and boogers all over this thing, trying to sound like an elk and until it's my turn, you know. And so I'm trying to give her bugling lessons while these elk are coming. And needless to say, 
I didn't get an elk, but I mean, she, I mean, it was just one of those experiences. It's like, it was cool, but at the same time, it was, well, it's cool no matter what. I mean, it yeah. was yeah. trying to wrestle with the kids, leaning over the top of my shoulders, like, give me, <laughs> give me my turn. Like, well, shit, I ain't gonna, I better give it to her. Uh, and sure, shit, she ended up making some weird noises that the elk didn't wonder what the hell that was all about, but yeah, at least, you know, had her with me. Oh, yeah. She yeah, paid the price, so I got a blue grouse later, and I had to, I had her on her, this little backpack had a kickstand, so yeah. she's, I set it down, and I walk off about 15 feet or so, and she's like leaning really hard to <laughs> see where the hell I'm going, and I ended up, I mean, it was, it was a log jam, a lot of places where blue grouse hang out, so I didn't want to walk in there with, you know, take a chance on falling with her on my back, and, and then, so she just leans out, and she got that thing top heavy, and she did a face plant <laughs> in the dirt there, and I'm like, God dang it, and this sounds really bad, but. I only got like one more step and I got a shot at this blue grouse. So I went ahead and shot the blue grouse and then grabbed it and came back and she's over there trying to do push ups, trying to get her face out of the dirt. But it's, it's just, you know, one of those things. And then, I mean, this is serious. I mean, this is serious. I tied two blue grouse on the bottom of her baby backpack. We're walking out there and this lady's walking up the trail. First, Sarah has dirt all over her face and she's where her tears and stuff were was the only place was clean. And she's like, you know, but she wasn't an anti-hunter. She was like, oh, my God, this is, what, is this your daughter? I'm like, of course it's my daughter. And and Sarah's, she took a picture of me, and she asked me to sign this piece of paper so she can get the copyright on it. And it was a postcard she was going to go, and it was called Legends. It was like, here's Dad <laughs> with Daughter, and there's a couple of bluegrass hanging below her. But I never did see the postcard, but she was uh, all about taking our picture with these two bluegrass. That's, That's awesome, awesome, man. That's so cool. That's so cool. But so yeah. y- you got into uh, guiding at 16 years old. I mean, how, how, did, yeah. how, how, did, how did that uh, transpire? And, and you're guiding to this day, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, just uh, my, my football coach in high school had his own rafting company, and I got involved with the rafting company, taking rafts down the Arkansas River and the Colorado River. And then um, his buddy, um, his name was Jack Smith, and up in Marvel, Colorado, which part of my family came from anyways, um, was at a, an outfitting business up there, and he was starving for guides. And I already knew the area because that was one of the areas that I've hunted for such a long time. And it just, uh, I got, we got introduced, and yeah, I was a young kid, but um, I knew about more about the area than, than he did. I want to say more about there. Take that back. I've been to different areas in the in the in the area that than he was that he was going to, and this kind of opened up his horizons a lot more of some of the area that uh, that I felt needed to be investigated. Some of the areas I never could reach out to because I didn't have horses. My my dad didn't have horses, and it was something I was always looking at from where I was hunting with my parents. I wasn't going to give up that hunting spot because that was our hunting spot. But now that I had the opportunity to get on horseback and go virtue into the you know room bells wilderness area and stonemass wilderness area get back up in there where i always wanted to go um it was it was he was he was scratching my back and i was scratching his and i got it for him for a couple of years and then jack belk and then and then into into alaska um so it was uh, i was just my way of just staying outside i mean staying uh and and then as far as and I only did the high-end stuff. I did two or three years of deer and elk, and I said, that's it for me. Now I know why people don't like hunters so much. A lot of these guys would show up, their guns weren't even sighted in. They're like, hey, I paid 
$2,000 for this Weatherby, put a Zeiss scope on it. You mean to tell me it's not shooting straight? I'm like, <laughs> they like, well, but they stuck this thingamajig in the barrel, and right there where I picked it up, I go, that was bore sighting. And I mean, you, you really never did shoot this thing? No, it's brand new. It's ready to roll. I mean, you get that kind of mentality, and then these guys would shoot something and wound it and not really know what to do, or they took a sound shot. Yeah, I heard the bushes rustle over there. I experienced all that as a very young age, I'm like, and which was totally against the grain of everything my dad or anything ever taught me. So I was like, you know what, I'm stepping away from this. So I'm doing the bighorn sheep, I'm doing the doll sheep, I'm doing the desert sheep, I'm doing the high-end stuff. Hopefully that's a different breed of hunters, and it was. And so that's kind of how I was able to live those kind of high-end stuff. Like I'd give anything to go kill a bighorn sheep. I'd do anything to shoot a doll sheep. So to live that emotional high with a guy that's been saving his money his whole life, only gets two weeks vacation, and he's taking it away from his family and kids. They're saying, Dad, we know this is a dream of yours. We'll take your two weeks vacation. Yeah, it'd been great to go to Disneyland, but we know how important this is to you. And to be that person's guide is 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 I can't even put into words. So you're going to work your ass off for this guy. And then to see it all come true and the chest bumps and the high fives. And the, and that was my way to go and sheep hunting because I hadn't drawn a tag yet. I hadn't, you know, didn't know if I ever would. I sure as hell wasn't going to be able to afford a doll sheep hunt. And then it started clicking. You know, maybe I can guide and maybe tr- trade labor guiding in to get enough clients under my belt that you didn't have to pay me for or are you going to let me hunt a species uh, myself? So that's how I got my brown bear. That's how I got my grizzly bear. That's how I got my doll sheep. So that's, I kind of traded labor for hunting, and that's kind of what's kept me in the game of, of doing stuff like that. And, and mostly some of the hunters, because Jonah really polices his guys pretty well, and, and some of the outfitters I've worked for in the past did as well. So it wasn't so much. I'm not knocking the guys that got the money to go do it and can do three or four grand slams before they die of old age. It's, I, I, I had nothing against those guys, and I guided those guys, and they were great guys, too. Just a whole different dynamic of adrenaline. Like, down it before, it was no big deal. They were going to shoot as long as it was bigger than the one they shot the year before. Where the guys I really like are the guys, yeah, I'm not going to get maybe as a bigger gratuity because it is a guy that's a blue-collar worker that's a printing press mechanic making $30,000 a year, but, man, this is what his dream come true. His family, you know, his dad helped a little bit, his you know, for Christmas cards, don't buy me any gifts. Just stuff an envelope, put a $20 bill in there for me. That guy, when he got his sheep, that that's it was almost like me getting to myself. I mean, it was just to see that emotional high. So that's what really keeps me, my heart beating for guiding for that kind of that kind of hunting. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, but, uh, but in the same time, you're sacrificing some of your own hunting, it sounds like, but in the end, you know, you were able to obtain some of your own hunts. Um, now that I'm 56 years old, I'm starting to think, you know, with multiple ankle surgeries, knee surgeries, and <laughs> all this kind of stuff that, that maybe I need to start hunting for myself because i got a ton of points in a lot of different states that I just put in for preference points knowing I can't give that hunt its due diligence because I'm in Alaska. So one of these days I'm going to have to retire um, probably the next couple of years. Um, I, I keep saying that every year, but um, um, I, I do need to spend more time hunting for myself because it, uh, it's starting to turn into uh, an uphill battle if, unless we can uh, get some support and yeah, help, help exactly. the situation. 
You uh, you had alluded to uh, uh, some some bad injuries, and Marv had told me that you uh, sounds like you had f- fallen out of a tree stand. Is that? Yeah, you know, for as much as I've been above timberline, clamp-ons on, this, that, and the other, Kansas has flat kicked my ass. Um, <laughs> it, I took a really, really bad fall, and I broke my face, every bone in my face, um, and my wrist, my chest bone, my collarbone, and uh, the only thing that saved my life was um, when I woke up, I had the sensation of, like dirt in my mouth, so I couldn't breathe. And so I'm trying to, so I'm right-handed. The first thing I try to do is stick my finger in my mouth, and I couldn't because it's, it's dangling. So I'm like, all right, so now I'm trying to use my left hand, and luckily my my forefinger, my, my pointing finger and my thumb was working because just my ulna broke on that arm, uh, ulna bone in my in my forearm. So and I had mittens on, so I was trying to get them off, but my bones were facing the opposite direction. There was in my left oh. hand where they were compounded out. So they were facing the wrong way to try to get my mitten off. So I finally got my thumb out before I'm about ready to lose consciousness again. Went to put out this dirt, but it wasn't dirt. It was the roof of my mouth resting on my tongue. And because my nose was broken and all swollen, I couldn't breathe through my nose and I couldn't breathe through my mouth. So your body goes into a secondary alarm mode when you're choking, which took me out of being unconscious. So that, in a way, saved my ass. I mean, flat 100%. I mean, I still go to Anschutz Medical Center twice a month, and it's been four years now. They, they were doing little brain games, uh, trying to, uh, try to, you know, I never was that smart in the first place, but <laughs> try to get things working again. And, um, I mean, when it first happened, I didn't talk right, so I didn't want to talk to people because I sounded really bad, and, I mean, it sounded, I mean, I just didn't like the way I sounded. Um I learned how to spell again. Like I said, I never was good at spelling in the first place, but I learned how to spell by sounding words out, you know, uh, rather than the way they're spelled. And and that enhanced, taught me how to talk again. And, and so that's the process they went through with my speech therapy and all that kind of stuff. So it was an uphill battle there for a while to try to get back on my feet again. Dang. So I, I, then, I'm assu- assuming you're wearing a, a, a harness now when you get up in the tree? Yep, I promised myself, my family, that, I mean, I've never used a harness before in my life. It wasn't because I fell asleep. When I was in, I, I, I made my own tree stand as far as, it's called a crotchy. So all cottonwoods, they come up and they Y. And this thing's setting that Y, so it's not going to go anywhere, but it doesn't have a seat. So you gotta, I had a store-bought seat that goes around the trunk of the tree and then clamps on. So when I stood up and looked at this white tail, set back down again, the buckle broke on that and sent me over backwards right on my face. And luckily I was able to get my hands out in front of me, um, which is why I broke my wrist and my breastbone and my collarbone and all that kind of stuff um, to absorb some of that shock so I didn't take the whole thing. But um, that was one accident. Three days later, I mean three years later, I'm sitting there in a tree stand and I'm, I got a white-tailed buck. He's like a 160-inch white-tail coming to me two days in a row and I can't shoot him because of this one limb in the way. But it's it's an overhanging limb on another tree 20 feet in front of me that is way up the tree. But in my shooting lane, I'm like, God dang it, I'm fed up with this shit. So I got out of my tree stand, and I had one extra tree step. And so I screwed a tree step in the other tree that the limb I had to climb up to to go get to. And then 
then I had a an old there was a busted limb there that was about two and a half feet long that I was able to prop up next to the tree that I could put my other foot on. Then there was a Y in the tree that I could throw my leg up there and and get in there. And once I got to there, then I could reach up there with my saw and cut that limb out of the way. Well, when I threw my leg up there, I got it to the crotch of the tree, but the the the, the branch that I propped it up on the trunk slipped out from underneath me. So there I am hanging upside down, my foot in the crotch of this tree, looking like a freaking idiot, and I can't. I mean, I, I tore my LCL and my MCL, totally hyperextended my knee, and I can't get out of it. I mean, I can't, I, 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 and I still ain't all the way fixed from my shoulder surgery and all that kind of stuff. So I finally was able to reach down to this tree step that I put in toward below where that limb was that I propped against a tree and unscrew it, screw it back in, get a little more leverage so I could get my foot up out of that, out of that crotch of that tree and then... So then there goes a knee surgery. So, yeah, Kansas has flat kicked my ass. I don't know what it is about that. Sounds like you need to stay out of the trees, man. Dang. Yeah, yeah. That's why my wife's still in the military because I'm pretty accident prone and we need the insurance. (laughs) Wow. So I imagine, though, those late season hunts uh, are pretty desirable since you're doing the guiding in the fall. Yeah. I mean, I've... uh, I mean, I shot a really, really nice antelope last year with my bow deer and rifle season. And um, and I do a lot of that. I end up having to use my bow during rifle season, and then but with the white tail in Kansas, I mean that's bow season, obviously. But um, um, I've been knock on wood. I've been able to still keep a, a streak going pretty good. That uh, you know, with only four or five days left of the season, when I come back from Alaska, still been able to get an elk and and um, um, and then go to Kansas is is uh, been able to shoot a white tail, and then. I get an antelope during the during the rifle season with my bow, so I'm still able to harvest some animals. Then I'm always able to, you know, shoot an animal while I'm in Alaska too. So it uh, it works out pretty well. I mean, it needs to start working out better. I need to do some. <laughs> my passion was mule deer hunting above timberline, and I haven't done that in a dog's age. I haven't done that in a long time. Um, so yeah, I sounds like. Um... There is just a ton of awesome adventures you've had in Alaska, and we would really like to bring you back on and just really dive into Alaska. Um, you'd alluded to grizzly bears and doll sheep, and I know you've uh, done some stuff on Sitka Island uh, or, or Kodiak Island, I, I believe it was. And oh, yeah, the Larry Jones was on that hunt. Yeah, so uh, we would. Uh, We'll, we'll go ahead and uh, you know cut it off here and and have you back on so we can you know dive into uh, the the up north hunting uh, on a future podcast if you don't mind. No, yeah, give me a call. We'll see if we can make it work. Yeah, awesome. Well, we really appreciate your time. And if there's anything you want to leave the the listeners with, um, you know, feel free to do so. Uh, the only thing I would suggest is. Uh, realistic back all the way to the beginning where I said uh, uh, take more notes because uh, your memory doesn't it doesn't last as well as you think it does so it's nice to have those things to reflect back to and um, if you do are fortunate to have kids uh, get them outside and and your kids friends I mean get uh, get them all involved awesome that's a great way to uh, to finish this podcast off uh, we like I said we appreciate it sounds good I appreciate you guys thank you don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. We've got a bow, 
giveaway coming up. It'll be featured on the next podcast. Look forward to that. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play. Check us out on our website, tradquest.com. We're on Instagram, Facebook. Keep the wind in your face. Pick a spot and shoot straight. Frosty before the sun comes up, the geese are on the wing. The deer are fat and happy, no, they don't suspect a thing. I can't take it any longer, I've got to breathe some air. The only cure for what I've got is a week or so out there. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through and through, hunts my middle name. Get outside.